Good morning. There it is. How is everybody today? Okay, I, you're not going to answer that truthfully, so let's just roll on. Can you at least smile at me? Okay, good. Um, we are plugging through a, a series right now, but before we dive into it, I just want to uh, let you know some of the things that are going on here at the church. And uh, today we celebrate our 10-year uh, anniversary as a church. We are 10 years old today. And yes, amen. And everything is owing to grace. And so tonight we're going to celebrate in a big way. I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, those who are current members or are in the membership process, um, you guys can come at 4.30 for a family meeting where we just talk about what God is doing here and thinking uh, forward. And then at 5.45, we invite everybody to come. We're going to be eating tonight. We'll have uh, pizza for you. And then about 6.30, we're going to go from 6.30 to 7.30 and really just spend time doing what the Bible says to do, and that is recount the wondrous deeds of God. And so just through testimony, through uh, videos, uh, through just scripture being read, through a timeline of what God has done, through statistics of what God has done over 10 years, I think it's going to be a really encouraging time. So I really hope that you can come. For those of you who are normal second service attenders, this is an opportunity for you to see those and to be with those in the first service. So it's going to be jam-packed, and I am uh, really looking forward to that time. So please come back. And that will be what we do uh, this evening. Now, this coming week, this Friday, is Good Friday. And so we will also have a Good Friday service in this room that we want you to be a part of. We will provide child care for that if that would help you. And we will, for an hour and 15 minutes, just reflect on the narratives in the Scripture about uh, Jesus' walk to the cross. And so it's always a beautiful time to really focus our mind towards the death and resurrection of Jesus. And then, of course, Easter Sunday is this coming Sunday when we celebrate that he is alive. And it's not too late if some of you are interested in taking uh, some international students home with you for an Easter meal. Um, SIT, uh, international students that we partner with, um, are ready, primed and ready for some who might want to take them and, and do lunch with them at Easter. Uh, so please let us know if that's something you might be interested in. Now, the following Sunday, not April 5th, that's Easter, but April 12th, for our birthday, we're going to throw the city a party. And so we're going to have inflatables. We're going to have food for everybody. We're going to have a baptism. And we'll have games. And we invite you to come. So come and pray for good weather because it won't happen if it rains. That's just how it's going to roll. So pray for good weather. And uh, we are so looking forward to just celebrating Christ this Easter season. So put those on your calendar. Make sure you're a part. Now to Today, we are continuing in a series. We've just come out of studying the book of Jonah. Uh, the Sunday after Easter, we're going to study the book of Philippians. But in between, we are in a series right now entitled Solid. Solid, a sure word for a shaking faith. And these are meant to take common objections that both believers, if they were honest, and unbelievers have regarding Christianity, regarding God and His Word, and so the first one was, can we really believe the Bible is infallibly, inerrantly the Word of God? The answer was yes. And can God be good and still sentence or punish people to hell? The answer was, He still can be. And the third one was, are there multiple ways to God or is there just one way? And we declared that through Christ there is only one way. And today we, we hit a very common, maybe the most core objection for many people regarding Christianity, and that is, how can God be good and still allow suffering in the world? So what I want to do is I want to start with some things that have happened this week, give you the outline of where we're going, and then pray and read the scriptures. <clears throat> this week in downtown Raleigh, on Monday about 11 o'clock, I got a news bulletin that said three men standing on some scaffolding about six to eight stories high. The scaffolding collapsed and they plummeted to their death here in downtown Raleigh. One is still in critical condition. And my heart just broke. These men were in their 30s, had families. And sadness just comes over me. 
It was then on Tuesday morning when another news bulletin comes across my phone. It says an Airbus plane carrying 150 passengers just nosedived into the French Alps. And if you've been following the story, it has come to find out that the co-pilot had locked the pilot out and had intentionally driven the plane into the side of the mountain. More than likely because of some emotional instability of his own. More than a suicide though because it intentionally killed 150 people. And that was just in the first two days of the week. And that's just a small slice of the suffering in our world. From wars that are all over the place to people intentionally killing others because of their ethnicity or color of their skin all over the globe or because of their faith. To the suffering that you experienced this week. Being told something that wasn't true. Being spoken to angrily. Having to live in the present with past bad decisions. Some of you had physical pain this week. Suffering is replete. And so the question is, how could a good God allow such a thing? Today what we're going to look at is the answer to that question and a few more. The three questions we're seeking to dive into today is how could God allow suffering? Doesn't that make him either weak or not good? The second question we're going to deal with is why is suffering in the world? And then the third is then how do we suffer? How do we suffer? But what I want to do before we tackle these things and before we read 1 Peter is I just want to pray. My heart is drawn to pray for those families from those that have, specifically in our city, that have lost loved ones. I called the superintendent over the site on Wednesday and just asked if there was some way. We've done some grief counseling for many years and we're connected with those who do grief counseling and if there was any way that our church or our pastoral staff could come alongside and help those families. And they said that they had already, uh, they had certain avenues that their company had already set up, but he was so appreciative. His name was Bill Wiggins. And just can't imagine what him and the other people who didn't pass away, those who experienced a lot of that tragedy are going through. And friends, I love our city. I love our city. And so I feel like we need to pray for them. And so we're going to pray, and then I'll read 1 Peter chapter 1, and then we'll hear from God's Word. So let's pray. Father in heaven, as I've just scratched the surface, suffering is everywhere. And I just ask, oh God, that you would comfort the downcast. You would come alongside the lonely. You would make wise the simple. You would rejoice the soul of those that are in pain. You would comfort to the depths of those who are experiencing such deep grief. And Father, I pray in this moment right now that you would draw near to those families who have just lost a husband or a dad or a friend. And that God, we would... We would hate that sin is in the world at all and that this world is broken and therefore that death occurs. And God, I pray that it would cause us to love our city. It would cause us to love our neighbor. It would cause us to love one another and be the hands and feet and the comfort and the grace that Christ gives to us that we might be able to give it to others. Father, right now as we dive into such a a difficult topic, I just pray that we would not allow our hearts or our minds to trump what you say about yourself. And even though we might be left struggling to understand everything, 
I pray that you would do a miraculous supernatural work in this moment of building up our faith and giving us confidence in you. Lord, we need you. We need you in power. So please, oh God, come. I ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's read the Bible together, shall we? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. God's perfect and wonderful word says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, as is necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that, purpose statement, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor on that last day at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. And we find ourselves when we read that in a quandary. We find ourselves in a quandary. How can God be good and suffering exist in the world? The quandary is this. If God is not in control and cannot stop suffering, then we might be able to say He's good and loving, but He's lost power. He's weak. But then... If he is able to stop it and doesn't stop it, then there's no way he can be good. It seems like an open and shut case. God has been put on trial. We are judge, jury, and executioner. And it seems pretty clear. Either God doesn't have power or he's not good. And yet, when we read this passage right here, something totally different is described. Peter describes to a people who've gone through suffering and will, as the book says, will necessarily encounter more suffering. He says that that suffering can not only be embraced without compromising your view of God, but the suffering that comes will actually strengthen you and deepen your view of God and your faith in Him. It's totally different. Our minds say open and shut. God's Word says... Rather than compromising our view of God, our view of God can stay robust and strong and trials and suffering actually strengthen our faith. What do we do with this quandary that's communicated by experience and by here now God's word? Well, let's just start with an argument if the biggest tension is, is philosophical, if it's, if it's in our brains, and just can't compute how God is not either weak or He's just not good, let's deal with that first. If suffering comes, some think because God is either weak or He is not good, then God must be compromised and pushed out of the way. That the way to deal with suffering is to compromise your or the Bible's understanding of God. And to maybe even say, abandoning belief in God altogether. I was listening to a sermon this week by Tim Keller where he quotes Martin Luther King Jr. Martin Luther King Jr. in 
his letters from a Birmingham jail, says this. The only way we can know if a human law is unjust is if there is a divine law, a higher law of God. Let's make sure that we follow that out. I know personally that beating and lynching and murdering are wrong because God's word tells me that people are made in his image and therefore to kill someone or to hurt that image of God is against his word. Therefore, if someone does those things, that is not a just action. A just action is defined by what God says is right and wrong. But if we compromise our view of God and we push him to the side and we believe that answering the problems of suffering are by compromising God and moving him out of the way, we have a bigger problem. Because there's no way you can call anything absolutely unjust. Injustice has to be defined about what you think is right or wrong. If I go up to you and punch you in the face and I say that's just, you have no ground to stand on to say that I'm wrong. Because I feel in that moment that punching you is a good thing. But everyone would say that's not a good thing. Why? Because embedded in the DNA of the human heart is a higher divine standard communicated in God's word. You actually have a larger problem in dealing with suffering if you compromise your view of God and push him out of the way. If you take an understanding of natural selection, which is fine for Christians and non-Christians, but if you take that, you have embedded in your worldview a worldview that necessitates suffering. Survival of the fittest, right? The strong overcomes the weak. There has to be suffering for things to evolve. Our world demands suffering in that worldview. And you have no answer for it if you compromise God and push Him out of the way. And so ultimately, as we stand here together, fellow sufferers in this journey, our greatest problem is not philosophical. Our greatest problem is personal. Because we've all experienced the pain of suffering. And we've all asked the question, why? We've all seen someone go through pain. And we have either physically hurt ourselves or we are hurting for someone else. And so what do we do? Well, rest assured that when suffering comes, everybody becomes a theologian. Everybody talks about God. You either blame him, call him into question, try to relegate him and move him out of the way, but you're still talking about him. Or you embrace him and you trust him. Either way, he's still there. When suffering comes, it serves as neon lights that God matters in the midst of our pain. And so, as we stated in the first sermon in this series, we know God because He has perfectly and infallibly and errantly revealed Himself to us in His Word. And so, if we want to know about God in the midst of our pain, we must dive into the depths of where He's told us about Himself. And so, He tells us in His Word how He acts and what He thinks about suffering. So let's start here and listen to this sentence carefully. You do not have to compromise a great view of God when suffering comes. Just a great view of man. 
You don't have to compromise a strong, robust view of God when suffering comes. Only your understanding of the greatness of man has to be compromised. Because suffering speaks to us. And it tells us some things that are undeniable. How does suffering speak? It speaks and says that sin entering into the world is heinous and ugly and horrible. It speaks because everyone's been hurt by it. Everyone's known some natural disaster or experienced some oppression in various degrees. Everyone has inflicted pain upon themselves and you hate it. You hate the pain you go through. You hate the guilt you feel. You hate the fact that people oppress one another. You hate natural disasters. You hate it. Suffering speaks to us and tells us how bad sin is. God's word speaks to us and tells us that God is without sin. And therefore, if every bit of suffering were judgment, and had no mercy involved in it at all, it would still be just. If every bit of suffering on the planet was only judgment and not mercy, it would still be just because God is without sin and our sin is treason against Him. And so the only punishment for treason against an eternal God is an eternal punishment. Suffering speaks. It speaks loudly. It also speaks about man's need for comfort because if any of you have been through it, you know you need comfort in your pain. And that's where the sermon will end. So I won't spend much more time there for now. But suffering also speaks to us and says that man is weak. Because man cannot stop it. Yes, I am so thankful that we have researchers and doctors, that we have aid workers, and we have people that fight for justice in an in and unjust world. But ultimately, it's like holding sand. We can't stop it. We can't hold it all in our hands. We cannot stop suffering. Suffering speaks to us that man is weak. And so friends, when suffering speaks, we don't have to compromise our view of the greatness of God, only our view of the greatness of man. Because we have a God that even though we can't wrap our minds around everything in the midst of suffering, our God is still in control and on his throne. Listen to the way God's word speaks. Isaiah 14, 24 and 27. He speaks with confidence and says, The Lord Almighty has sworn, Surely I have planned, and so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will stand. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? So then, friends, we are left not with the option of saying God isn't good or God is weak, but with the option of saying we are weak. And although we can't understand all of the purposes and designs of God, it does not compromise one ounce of his control and sovereignty and power and may I say love. We might not know all the reasons. And we might not ever know them this side of heaven. But the greatest consolation we have in our pain is that God has not been removed from his throne and that he is in control. So Charles Spurgeon says it this way. When you go through trials... The sovereignty of God, His control, His love, His ability to secure all of His promises for you and that He hasn't failed or gotten weak one ounce 
when you go through trials, the sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which you lay your head. That's where consolation is found in the midst of your pain. Not in compromising God. And so although we do not know why, and although we do not know all the reasons, we can still be led to answer our next question, which is this. Why is suffering in the world? Why is it here? Well, we can first say why it's not. It's not because God is absent. It's not because God is powerless. It's not because God fails to be good, but because sin is horrible and the devil is at work. And when we struggle in the midst of our suffering to call our God into question, many times it's just because we do not know how vile and deformed and diseased and destructive sin really is. Sin is multi-layered and it destroys. So let's look at three different aspects of sin. Why is suffering in the world? First of all, because of personal sin. The Bible says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I am an individual and I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I have rebelled against my captain, King Jesus. And therefore, I experience some suffering because of my personal sin. But it's not just because of my personal sin. Because guess what? I'm not the only individual on the planet that's struck with this sin problem. The whole world, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Therefore, you not only have personal sin, but you have others' sin. You have oppression from people. You've been oppressed. You've been oppressed in your home. You've been oppressed at work. Some people have been oppressed on a systemic level. You've seen oppression from governments or from warring factions. You've seen Christians persecuted. It's because people are sinners and they want their way. And so in their selfishness. And then they're bent towards evil. They do wrong. Sin is horrible. But it's not only personal. And it's not only that it's filled with oppression and other sin. But sin is actually on a global scale. That when our parents, Adam and Eve, when they sinned, committing high treason against God, it introduced sin not only into the fabric of humanity, but to in everything all over creation. Trees, rivers, mountains, winds, all affected by sin. That's how Romans 8 talks. Romans 8, 18 through 20 says this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Suffering is meant to help us to see how frail our hearts are, how weak this world is to deliver promises and meant to give us a longing for that day when Jesus will return. That's what First Peter told us. Suffering puts us through a cauldron that makes us ready for that last day. But it goes on. It says the creation, not only humanity, but all of creation, waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Because the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, not because it asked for it. But because of him who subjected it in hope. Who subjects things in hope? Whose agenda is hope? That's God. God, as a consequence to sin entering into the world... Subjected the world to futility. Just punishment for sin. And yet he did it in hope. 
in hope that anyone who would confess their sin and trust in Christ, that they would be delivered and set free from bondage and rescued. And that on that last day, there will be a new heavens and a new earth where the broken creation, creation broken by sin, will be made new and fresh and glorious in ways that words can't even express. John found himself longing to have the words when he writes the book of Revelation. But friends, why does suffering enter the world? Because sin is horrific. And the devil is at work. And so now we must just ask ourselves, if suffering is in the world because sin is in the world, then it sounds like we've got to ask the question, well, how do we suffer? What do we do if suffering comes to me? Well, the first one almost seems like a restatement of what I've just said, but it needs to be said this way. How do we suffer? We suffer by expecting suffering. By expecting it. It's one thing to hurt because pain has entered into your world, but it's another thing to doubly hurt because your expectations weren't met. If you have the expectation that your lot is not to suffer, then when suffering comes, you not only hurt because of the suffering itself, but you hurt that you're suffering at all because you're expecting that you won't suffer. It's double hurt. But Peter labors in this book, looking at sufferers in the eye, knowing that they will suffer again, and he's one of them that will suffer. He's speaking to himself. And he says, do not be surprised. Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at natural disasters. Don't be surprised at oppression. Don't be surprised that you experience some personal sin or your personal suffering because of personal sin. Don't be surprised. Of course suffering is going to exist. And that's what Peter underscores at the end of the book in 1 Peter chapter 4. The message of 1 Peter is underscored by these verses. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. It says this. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. Exact same phrase that was used in the text that we read earlier in chapter 1. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. But if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you, warning, warning, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify in that name because it is time right now for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? The question that Peter raises is not, will you suffer? But how will you suffer? Will you suffer as one who follows Jesus or will you suffer, suffer as one who is rebellious and angry, a murderer, a thief, an evildoer, a meddler? Well, of course, he's calling us to follow Christ in our suffering, to suffer as Christ did. It says to share in Christ's sufferings. Christ suffered for us in the path of love. He took our sin upon him. He experienced the judgment that we should have deserved. And so we share in his sufferings. We demonstrate his love. And then we experience suffering ourselves. And Peter calls that judgment. I think what might be helpful here is that we describe it as little j judgment. Looking towards the last day, which would be big J judgment. Big J judgment would be the day of reckoning. 
when those who've trusted in Christ will be ushered into the full, brilliant presence of God covered in righteousness and living with Him for eternity in full joy versus those who do not trust in Christ and they are in the presence of God not covered by Jesus' righteousness and therefore experience the eternal torments of hell. But right now, he says, with those who are believers, they're experiencing what we might call not the big J judgment. That's on the last day when Jesus returns. But we're experiencing the little J judgment, so to speak. That is a judgment that serves to cleanse God's people and prep them for that last day. Kind of riding on the victories that Jesus won when he suffered for us and took our judgment in our stead. And so, let's boil it down. The sufferings that you and I are going through right now are refining us. And they're a means of getting our faith to the end. But they're called and talked about as judgment. But it's a little judgment that takes the barnacles of sin that have attached themselves to our soul and it sloughs it off. Peter uses the image of taking us and putting us in the cauldron of fire so that our faith comes out pristine and pure. Yes, it's called judgment, but it's not a judgment that leads to eternal death, but a judgment that leads to eternal life. And when you experience suffering and you go through it, and on the end of that suffering, you're able to say, God, I trust you, I love you. It's a brilliant sense of God's grace to you in that. It's similar to the Passover. If you understand the Passover, what happened was God said that his judgment was going to come upon the firstborn of anyone who didn't have blood on the doorposts. And so what happened was they sacrificed animals. They put blood on the doorposts. The angel of death passes over the ones who have blood on the doorpost, but then executes judgment upon those who do not. Our going through suffering in the here and now is like the blood on our doorposts. Yes, we go through pain, but it is a God passing over the eternal judgment. And any who do not trust in Him will experience that eternal judgment. And so He says, if we're experiencing the little J judgment now, how much worse will it be for those who do not sit in the rest and cradle and righteousness of Jesus. And so, the image that I think is helpful as we all personally go through suffering is one of like a weightlifter. I remember in college, I was not a weightlifter, but I remember lifting weights. And so for some of us, we get this experience after like three minutes lifting weights, and for others it might take all day. But I remember if you were doing a bench press, you would push that weight and then you would just go until you couldn't go anymore. And the ultimate experience was you got the weight to about right here and then you just started shaking like this right here. And that weight was wobbling and you had this spotter that was there and you hoped it, to the Lord that he was strong and they would pull that weight off of you. And I remember one time that I had no more strength. And I was just pushing, and it was like, is this going to decapitate me, or am I going to get this up? And the guy, literally, he just had to pull down, and he, he pulled the entire thing up on his own. And he was like, you did nothing when, you, when that just happened. And he was like, that was really painful. I think I pulled something. And so it's like, why is that? Because in order for muscle to be built up, it first has to be torn down. And as we go through suffering, although God is not tearing down our faith, He's tearing away the things that are clamoring at our faith so that our faith will get stronger. The only way we are built up is to go through suffering. That's why Peter says in chapter 1 that it's necessary. And in chapter 4 that we shouldn't be surprised. 
And so the question is not will you suffer, but how will you suffer? How will you suffer? Will you suffer as one who follows Jesus or will you suffer as one who is in rebellion? It's not good to kick and to scream against God. To suffer in rebellion and and yelling and resisting God and calling God into question. Ultimately, that only leads to more hurt in your heart because eventually you'll walk around with guilt. And so not only are you hurting because suffering exists, but now you're hurting because of how you hurt. You didn't feel like you hurt right. And you walk around with guilt and pain. And I just want to look at you and I just want to say, it's never too late to come to the cross with your guilt. Those who are guilty, Christ is calling you right now to lay down all of your sin at His feet. Every bit of it. Come to Him just as you are and speak specifically to Him. Trust Him. Take your deepest pains, your deepest sorrows, your greatest regrets, the worst words that you say, and you take them to Him. And as you say those specifically to Him, And you ask for forgiveness. He'll wash you clean. And he'll make you new. But you know as well as I do. We, many times we live with regret, right? And that guilt comes back at random times. It comes back and you feel guilty. And I just want to encourage you, figuratively speaking, to look the evil one right in the eye and to tell him to back off. That you are a child of the king and you have been adopted. And that means that you stand forgiven, not guilty. And you can say, even though I don't look like my father by nature, that's the beauty of adoption. I'm now his, clothed with all his righteousness. And I stand washed and cleansed and forgiven and wanting to live for him. Come to him, you who are guilty. You're never meant to bear that burden by yourself. And when you come to Him, when you come to Him, you will be able to talk like this, even in the face of suffering. Listen to this quote from A.W. Tozer. Outside of the will of God, there is nothing I want. And in the will of God, there is nothing I fear. Not even suffering itself. That's what God says in Isaiah 43. He looks at the sufferer and he says, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And that means something. It means something. It means that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. And through the rivers, they'll not overwhelm you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you, for I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. It does not say there will not be fire. It doesn't say there will not be rivers and waves that come after you. It says that your faith will not be consumed because your God is with you and he will not leave you. So fear not. The safest place you can be is in the arms of your present Savior. He is with you. And so it's not will you suffer, but it's how will you suffer. And friends, I just want to speak with these final few minutes, just a point of kind of getting a little more personal even in regards to application. Not only is it application to say, how do we suffer by expecting it? Don't kind of double our hurt. But I think there are three things that would encourage us as we go. That the sufferer, how do we suffer? We suffer by walking towards God and not away from him. How do we suffer? By knowing his promises. And how do we suffer? With the cross in view. And because this is Palm Sunday, that is the Sunday prior to Easter Sunday, we're going to just look at Jesus' life as a means of showing us how to suffer. Because you know it was on Palm Sunday, right? Right? When he rides in triumphantly on a donkey, 
And all the people are waving palm branches and praising God for this man. And they're the very people that end up killing him later. By the end of the week, there's been mocking and betrayal and denial and crucifixion and death. Jesus knows what it is to suffer. And so let's just look at his suffering as a means to show us now in this first one how to suffer by walking towards God and not away from him. Jesus suffered temptation. He suffered. You might remember in Matthew chapter 4, he was without food, but his greatest temptation in suffering, his greatest temptation was not the food that he could have after not eating for 40 days. The greatest temptation was not the power he could have over everything. The greatest temptation that the devil was giving him was that he would do an end around suffering and not suffer at all. That was the greatest temptation. I will give you all power without the suffering. And Jesus, in the midst of temptation, knowing that it would lead to the forsaking of his Father to him, said, I will follow the path of my Father's will. I will walk towards God and not away from him. So that Jesus, who instead of doing an end around suffering, dealt with weak faith men for three years. He saw many turn away and not believe. He saw a dear friend die in Lazarus and he wept only to have two other friends call his goodness into question. And then Jesus in Matthew 23, he looks at the city of Jerusalem and he says, Oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would you have gathered your children together as a Hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. I would have done that for you. And then he records in Luke how he drew near to the city and wept over it. Jesus was called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief because of all the people that hurt him in his life. And yet, after the Lord's Supper, after he foretold his death, after he foretold the destruction of the temple, after he foretold the betrayal by one of his closest friends and the scattering of his closest people, even the denial of Peter, he walks into the garden to draw near to his father. He doesn't walk away from him. He walks towards him. And it says in Matthew 26, 37, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And he went to pray and he fell on his face because of the grief that he was experiencing. And he said, my father, if it is possible, let the cup of your eternal wrath pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will. But your will be done. And Luke 22 goes on to say that he was so weak that God the Father sent an angel from heaven to strengthen him. And being in an agony, he prayed more earnestly. So much so that his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When Jesus suffered, indescribable suffering, he went towards his Father, not away. Hebrews 5.8 says, He learned obedience through what he suffered, which means suffering taught him to walk into God, not away from the Father. That's what suffering does. It teaches us to walk towards God and not away. So that as Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, so eloquently says this, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. I've learned to trust my God. That's a learned thing. It was learned for our Savior who learned obedience through what He suffered. But as you suffer, be a learner so that you can embrace the wave that throws you not into hell but into the loving arms of your Savior. And that's the bridge into the next major 
application point is you suffer by knowing his purposes. The only way Jesus knew how to suffer was he knew the justice of his father was at stake. He knew love for us was at stake. He knew forgiveness could only come if he died. And that's what drove him there. It says for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And the way that we will suffer is by looking at Jesus and knowing that we are not being thrown into our eternal separation from God. But nothing separates us from God. We are being thrown onto the rock of ages. And so we experience suffering. Suffering, two purposes I think are the big categories. Suffering as judgment and suffering as mercy. Even though suffering is as judgment, we have to believe that God is good to judge. So this doesn't compromise his goodness. God is good to judge because sin is heinous. But the purpose that it can work in us is that it leads us to hate sin. It leads us to hate brokenness. It leads us to run away from sin. That's part of a purpose in suffering is to see just how bad sin really is. Also, when those individuals died from that scaffolding fall, it was a loud cry of Life is that short, and it can be taken that quickly. We are fragile. And so when we experience suffering, it is meant to be a lesson of our fragility. It's meant to lead us to a hatred of our own personal sin. But it's meant to lead us to a God of mercy. I just want to hold this out for you because some of you, you spend your time in suffering trying to think about what sin you committed that God is kind of zapping you for. I want to encourage the mess out of you right now that just take this as your lesson in suffering. For every single person, suffering comes not first that you would look backwards, but that you would look and gaze at Christ and run to Him. And as you run towards him, I promise you, as you get near to him, he will expose if there is any specific sin that you need to repent of. Rather than trying to look backwards and trying to discover why this has happened, look forward to the gaze at the beauty of Jesus. And as you draw near to him, he will make clear if there's something personal that you need to ask for forgiveness for so that your relationship with him can grow and deepen. And friends, that's a mercy that he is available to sinners. And so not only is God good to be a judge, but he's even better to be merciful in that sense, that suffering is a mercy. And we know that it helps us to press deeper into him and it grows our character. Romans 5 says this, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character hope and hope does not put us to shame. Suffering has a purpose to build us up, to make us people who endure and not give up. It gets our faith to the end. Many times it protects us. Suffering protects us from prizing things too highly that would destroy us. Tim Keller says this, if God lets you hurt today, he is trying to save you from a greater hurt tomorrow. Trust his goodness. Suffering helps us long for heaven because this world is not our home. Suffering in the midst of our deep pain, it also helps us to experience a depth of comfort that we would not experience had we not experienced the depth of pain. And then as we are comforted, it allows us to also comfort others in their trials. And I'll just say this about suffering. Suffering is the pry bar that opens the door to the stubborn heart of the unbeliever to let the gospel light shine in. It is many times how the people of God suffer that kind of prize open the heart of the unbeliever to begin to listen to the gospel of grace. And so there are purposes in suffering this week. I got a text from Craig and Elizabeth Priestley. We just sent them out to Chicago and they arrived on Monday. When they arrived on Monday, 
Monday evening at 9.40 Eastern Time, that's 8.40 Central Time, I get this text. Not going so well. We left the keys to the truck lock. You know, the lock that keeps the hatch down. We left it in West Virginia. We got a locksmith to break it open. It's cold and snowy here and it's slowing us down. We have scratched and broken furniture on the trip up the stairs. Craig ran into a car with the moving truck in an alley. Now we're locked out of the apartment at 8.40 p.m. And the owner is out of town and the rental agency is closed. Prayers would be appreciated. <laughs> we are wearing down. And when I read that, the Lord just took my heart and I believe just gave me this image of we prayed for relationships. And so here's what I texted back. I'm praying for you and I am so sorry. We will keep praying that you rest and that you trust and that you meet people who need Jesus. Remember Psalm 27. When war is against us, we will not fear. We can stand confident. I'm praying against your weariness. So I talked to Craig on Friday. He said that because we locked ourselves out, we end up having to talk to a lot of our neighbors to find out how to try to get a key. We talked to so many neighbors that we got invited to a birthday party already. <laughs> a birthday party celebrating two people's birthday and also the fact that they're moving in together. And so he's, he and Elizabeth are going to go to a birthday party with people that do not know Jesus because they were locked out. He said that we have met many maintenance men because of our ordeals. And they've had conversation after conversation. And he said that we have developed a relationship with the person of whose car I hit with the truck. And that was actually a positive thing, that the relationship that is. Friends, there are purposes. Purposes that we many times can't see. 10,000 purposes. And God sometimes in His grace allows us to see a few of them. But let's not compromise our view of God and His goodness and His power just because we can't see all of his purposes and designs. And so now as we take the Lord's Supper together, we suffer with a view towards the cross. Let me say this. If you've ever been confused in suffering, go to the cross. Because Jesus was unfairly tried, unjustly accused. He would witness the crowd yelling vile things. He was murdered for a crime he didn't commit. He was mocked and whipped, spit upon, crown of thorns, shoved upon his head. He carried a cross like a thief, even though he was perfect. In that pain, he walked the road. Every step, every fall, every scream was for love. It was for love. At the cross, we are told we are guilty. But at the cross, we're undeniably told you are loved. You are loved. No other religion can say that. That God loved so much that He gave His only Son. Christianity has the only answer. That holds up. And so we must trust our God. Final quote that leads us into the Lord's Supper is this. By Charles Spurgeon once again. Had any other condition. Been better for you. Than the one in which you are. Divine love. Would have put you there. God loves you. And he proved it. By sending his son. So in our suffering, we don't have to call God into question. We can trust Him. We can rest in His control. And even though we can't wrap our minds around why, we can know that we, He loves us. And therefore, we can walk towards Him. We can trust His reasons. And we can live lives of love while we await seeing Him forever when suffering will be no more.
Let's pray. Father, I love you. I thank you. I thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve. And I just pray now, as we all are sufferers, that we will come in this moment and we will declare Christ has suffered on our behalf. He has won the victory over sin so that one day there will be a time when there will be no more sin, no more Satan, no more death. There will be only joy and peace forever and ever. And so, Father, as we take the Lord's Supper together, I pray that you would take the one who has felt guilty and they would be able to cry out to you. You would heal the one who is hurting in their soul. You would give hope to the hopeless. You would give celebration because you are with us through the fire. So, Lord, now as we take this supper, help us to declare that we need you, that we love you, and that you love us, even in our guilt. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.